0: You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. As we head into the final quarter of the year, First Tech are seeing a spike in questions relating to recontribution strategies, especially involving pension commutations. So why is this and what are the issues advisors need to be aware of if they're implementing this kind of advice prior to 30 June? I'm your host, Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me today to discuss this recontribution strategy issue is Tim Sanderson. G'day, Tim. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm not too bad. Yourself? Yeah, going well, thanks. Now, we're recording this day after Anzac Day. Do you have a nice Anzac Day? Yeah, not much going on. A couple of cheeky beers. Oh, nice, nice. Well, I live over the road from a pub in the in the inner west of Sydney, so uh, I listened to Two Up all day yesterday. <laughs> the pub was quite noisy, but uh, I suppose it's nice to hear people having a nice time. All right, so moving on to the topic for today being recontribution strategies, specifically involving... Uh, commutations. So we're seeing a spike at the moment. Um, And actually, we've been seeing increased volumes on this issue all year. Why do we think that is?
1: Yeah, that's right. We certainly have seen increased volumes. Um, While we can never be certain, we do strongly suspect this is probably being driven by the abolition of those work test rules from 1 July at the start of this financial year. And that's allowed um, members to make voluntary contributions all the way up to age 74, including that 28-day period after the end of the month that they turn 75, without needing to satisfy any work test.
0: Okay, so we think all those members that are between age 67 and 74, including up to the 28 days after the end of the month they turn 75, are simply using the change in rules to implement re-contribution strategies. And because these types of clients or clients in this age group are probably already retired, that's why we're seeing a lot of these strategies involving clients commuting existing pensions um, to implement this, which then brings in an additional layer of complexity, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely right. So traditionally, a re-contribution strategy is normally something advisors would think about when a client Gets to retirement and do that as part of commencing their pension. But with the abolition of the work test, all of a sudden we're seeing members who are already retired and then looking to cash out and recontribute as we no longer need to worry about that work test.
0: Okay, well, I think most advisors will be familiar with recontribution strategies and why we might do it. But very quickly, do you want to give us a recap? Why do we want to do a recontribution strategy?
1: Yep, two basic reasons. So number one, it allows us to convert taxable component to tax-free component, and that can result in lower death benefits tax applying um, on death depending on a member's circumstances and beneficiaries at the time of death. And two, it can allow couples to even up and equalise their super balances and therefore maximise the amount of benefits that they can get into tax-free retirement phase under the transfer balance cap
0: rules okay i suppose when you think about these new three million dollar total super balance tax although yeah that's what i think we're going to call it we, names we don't know yeah um that this may also be another reason why you might want to do a recontribution strategy try and equal up those balances i mean assuming that that measure becomes law
1: yeah look i think so but Look, you'd probably already argue that anyone in that situation should already be implementing that spouse equalisation strategy for transfer balance cap purposes, anyway. Oh, yeah. And also remember that access to non-concessional contributions cap is going to depend on a client's total super balance. So clients who are being going to be subject to this proposed uh, additional
0: tax uh, probably wouldn't be making non-concessional contributions. Maybe, unless we're thinking about a spouse with a much lower total superbalance, maybe that that's might be an example. Yeah. Okay, so, um, all right. Now, whenever we talk about recontribution strategies, we normally get someone asking about potential application of Part 4A tax avoidance due to the reduction in the death benefits tax that may result. But from our perspective, we think tax avoidance rules are highly unlikely to apply, at least to a plain vanilla recontribution strategy, anyway. So, do you want to run through why we think that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, the reason for that is that for part for our, our avoidance rules to apply, a person needs to enter into a transaction really for the dominant purpose of obtaining a tax benefit. But with a recontribution strategy, the member implementing the strategy doesn't generally obtain any tax benefit. For example, their lump sum is tax-free. And they don't get any tax benefit from recontributing the amount as non-concessional either. Um, and instead, any tax benefit that may accrue will benefit the potential non-dependent beneficiaries via reduced death benefits tax in the future. But even that's uncertain and purely hypothetical because at the time we're actually doing the strategy, those beneficiaries might not end up receiving that death benefit. There might be nothing left uh, upon the client's death or the death benefit might end up going to other beneficiaries.
0: Yeah. I suppose the, the other thing that I've always thought about with this is, you know, you've you've got the member doing the re-contribution strategy. There's no involvement whatsoever with their kids at all. Um, and that the benefit ends up in the child's hands, but that's because someone else did something a long time ago, potentially, about re-contribution strategy. So it's it's just always been a, a bit of a yeah. quandary for me. Yeah. Um, so, just to summarise all of that, I think what we're saying here is as long as you keep it all simple uh, and don't start claiming deductions of uh, those recontributed amounts on the way back through, um, in which case all bets are off and choose your own adventure kind of stuff, then, then you should be fine.
1: That's right. And look, that's the way we've seen the ATO administer this strategy for many years. And so we think if they're going to change their mind, we would expect that they're going to warn people of that changed position and make quite a bit of noise about it.
0: Okay, so moving on to the next issue. Um, If we're commuting a pension to implement a recontribution strategy, I guess we need to worry about the pension commutation rules. So do you want to give us a quick recap of those?
1: Yep, sure can. So for this, I'll just focus on account-based pensions because they're the most common type of um, pension that we're going to be commuting. If we're doing only a partial commutation, it's pretty easy. We just need to make sure that the balance remaining straight after that commutation is at least equal to the remaining pension payment that we have to pay in that financial year. But if we're fully commuting, so for example, we've got 330 in our account-based pension and that's the amount we want to recontribute, Mm -hmm. then we need to make sure the members at least received a pro rata minimum payment before that lump
0: sum is paid. Okay, so imagine if you're a member of a large fund such as CFS, then we're going to administer that for you. But I guess you just need to be careful if you're a member of a self-managed super fund.
1: That's right. They're going to have to be careful and make sure that if we're doing a full commutation, then before that's paid, they've already received that pro rata pension payment right up to the relevant commutation date. Um, The risk is if that's not done, then the pension potentially fails the pension standards and will take to have ceased at the start of the year. And there's a lot of tax implications of that, so really important to get that right.
0: Yeah, I guess so some real traps there. I mean, they would take, as you said, they take the view that the pension, because it failed those pension standards, ceased at the beginning of the year. So any income earned off the assets that you thought were supporting this pension are now taxable. So just like a normal accumulation asset. And also we've got all that, reporting. So, we've got now got a transfer balance cap debit for the the cessation of the pension. Then we've got to go through all the paperwork and the advice and the estate planning and all that sort of stuff to re-establish the pension. And then we've got another round of transfer balance cap reporting to report the new credit for it. So, it's a real nightmare. So, we just want to make sure that we get all of that right. What's the next thing we need to think about?
1: The next thing we need to think about is what to do with the recontributed amount. Do you use it to start a new pension or do you refresh the original pension if we, for example, undertook a partial recontribution strategy? Because remember, we can't just add amounts back into an existing pension.
0: Okay, so if we take an amount out, recontribute it back into super, we can't just add that back into the original pension. So, okay, if we're going to still only want one pension though, so I suppose that process would be fully commute the pension, move everything back to accumulation phase, pull out the withdrawal, make the recontribution, and then start a new pension. Well, if that's in something like a master trust, that actually sounds quite expensive from a transaction cost perspective, you know, buy-sell, because we're now selling 100% of the units. Is, is that right?
1: That is right. So by selling all of those original
0: units, we're potentially incurring
1: transaction costs on all of those units.
0: Right. So I, I suppose the alternative to that is to simply just start a second or additional pension.
1: That's right, um, if the client is happy with that. Um, but it, I guess a couple of things. If, if I've got multiple accounts um, by starting a second pension, I also need to be careful of account-keeping fees. So if the fund will charge the client for each account rather than just one admin fee across all accounts, then I need to take that into account as part of the strategy. And also, depending on a client's circumstances, having a second pension may also be better from an estate planning perspective. Um, It may bring about the benefit of um, dual pension. You're essentially running a dual pension strategy, which can have a range of of benefits.
0: Yeah. So I imagine there we've now got one pension that's made up a 100% taxable component, the other one with 100% tax-free component. So we've got non-dependent beneficiaries. We send the uh, the account with all the uh, the tax-free component off to those non-dependent beneficiaries. I'm, I'm talking about tax, obviously, um, and then the spouse or whatever other dependent beneficiaries from a tax perspective. We we give them the, the pension account with all the taxable components, so therefore reducing any potential death benefits tax. Is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, that's, that's one of the main ways of using dual pension strategies and we have a much more in-depth sort of analysis of those strategies if advisors need further information in our super death benefits guide.
0: A uh, bit of a plug there. So, yes, jump onto the website and, and have a look at that. Now, what about minimum drawdown levels? So if I commute and restart a new pension, so an additional pension in this situation, then I'm still going to need to draw the annual minimum payment for my original pension. Plus, I've got a new pension now, so I need to draw down a pro rata amount from that new pension as well, don't I? Exactly. And that could
1: mean the client has to take more income in that financial year than they would otherwise like. But one option would be we could delay starting that new pension until on or after 1 June in the financial year. And there's a 1 June rule which says that if you commence the pension on or after that date, you don't have to draw a minimum payment for that one month of the financial year.
0: Uh, The good old 1 June rule. It used to be the 1 April rule, but now I think I'm I'm showing my age (laughs) because that hasn't been the 1 April rule for probably about 10, 15 years. But uh, yeah, the 1 June rule. So if I start on or after 1 June, I don't need to take a minimum for what would essentially be a, a one month minimum payment. So... Um, I suppose, therefore, I've got to be careful, though. I've got to make sure that the fund's going to be able to process the cash out uh, and get the money back into the fund and also commence a pension all within that period before the 1st of July, because I don't want to miss out on the client actually generating any income from the 1st of July onwards.
1: That's right. I mean, you wouldn't want the pension commencement delayed and the client being without income, for example.
0: Yeah, okay. Good point. Okay, what about also if I've got a grandfathered account-based pension for social security income test purposes? Could I lose that treatment if I do a recontribution strategy?
1: Uh, yes, potentially you could if if you partially or fully commuted and then recontributed and commenced a new account-based pension, then that new pension is going to have been commenced after 1 January 2015 and therefore is not going to be eligible for grandfathering. And so that means that new pension is going to be deemed for income test purposes rather than the grandfathered treatment, which is, you know, actual income less deductible amount.
0: Okay, so when you think about when those grandfathering rules changed over or those income test rules changed over, that was from the 1st of January 2015, wasn't it? That's right, yep. Right, so that's eight years ago. So, yeah, I suppose we might have some people left there. So a 73-year-old assuming they, you know, commence their pension shortly after the first no shortly before the first of January twenty fifteen at age sixty five they'd still have a, a couple of years left that they can take money out and recontribute. Um, so thinking about this, well if if we've got that client in that situation, uh, does that mean they shouldn't do a cash out and recontribution?
1: No, I mean, an advisor should still consider that strategy as it may still benefit the client overall. Um, And it will depend on their situation. For example, it could make no difference to their Social Security situation if um, they're asset tested instead of income tested. Mm -hmm. And also if they are income tested, depending on how much income they're actually drawing from that pension, um, the value of their deductible amount and also due to the historically low deeming rates at the moment, they actually could be better off under the non-grandfather deemed account-based pension scenario It kind of all depends. But the really important point to note there in any comparison is we really need to factor in that deeming rates are very likely to be increasing um, in the near future, notwithstanding they're frozen at the moment.
0: Yeah. So when do they come out of the, the freeze period? I think it's the 1st of July 2024? That's right. Yep. Right. So actually not that far away. Um so yeah, if you were to to do this, you need to understand the impact now but also potentially um, when those those deeming rates start to head north again potentially um when we when we get through this freezing period.
1: Yeah and now, it, the final point there would be if you do go to a deemed account-based pension there's no going back in the event.
0: yeah that's right' you're, you're out of the grandfathering that's it. Yeah. no more grandfathers or grandmothers for, for that sake. Um, now, what else do people need to think about? It's probably mainly
1: just some practical issues, I think.
0: Okay. So, and,
1: yeah, do you want to quickly run yep. through those? Sure. So the first one is how long this all takes. It's going to result in some time out of the market potentially. Now, if you're a member of a large fund, then depending on the fund, the recontribution can generally be done in a very short period overnight, for example. So time delays can be quite limited. But if it is an SMSF, it it could really take a bit longer because the money is going to need to be withdrawn, go out, hit the member's bank account, and they'll then need to transfer that that amount back into the fund as a contribution.
0: Yeah, time out of the market. Clients don't really like that at all today. (laughs) Um, How about all the paperwork? Yeah, there are lots
1: of different ways that it can be done and this will very much depend on the fund. So if the fund has it's important to find out whether the fund has any specific requirements to facilitate this and make sure you understand those and follow them to really limit delays and time out of the market
0: okay yeah i know when we when we looked at this a, a fair while ago when we saw these work test changes and we thought wow there's going to be lots of people doing recontributions changes. we had we had a look at it and this we actually came up with 52 Different ways it could be done. So, there's obviously a, a recontribution that goes back into the member's account, but then there's a recontribution that goes back into the spouse's account. And then there's all the different types of contributions that recontribution could be made at. It could be made as a downsize or a non concessional contribution under the lifetime CGT cap, all sorts of different variations. So, different funds may require different paperwork to make all that happen um, expediently. And the last thing you want is all this is ready to to rock and roll and go, but you're having problems with the with the fund not knowing how this is being treated, and therefore asking for additional paperwork, which simply slows everything down and more time out of the out of the market. So yeah, really go back and and talk to your um to your fund, make sure you've got a clear understanding of the paperwork before you jump into this space. Okay, Tim, I think that concludes the session. Yep, that's it. Terrific. Okay, thanks, Tim, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold, or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Advantius Investments Limited accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.